welcome. I'm Molly McCann Sanders, and you are listening to Bravado. Today is January 25th, Wednesday. Hopefully we'll release this today. Usually I record on Tuesday nights and we release on Wednesday, but we had had an appointment for my pregnancy yesterday and it was just... I was just too tired afterward to record the podcast. So that's life. Here we are. A little delayed today, but hopefully getting this out still on time. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing problems both at home and abroad. We're going to start by discussing some developments in the classified document scandal with President Biden. Then we'll move and discuss the escalation in the war in Ukraine. I want to also briefly touch on an interesting story I read about the Ohio legislature. Then we'll do a brief legal update and then head to the mailbag. So let's start by talking about the developments in this classified document saga. In the podcast last week, we talked about how each of the locations where documents have been found have some link, not just to, obviously, uh, President Biden, but to Hunter Biden as well. And Miranda Devine, who wrote the book The Laptop from Hell, I don't know if you've read that book. I read it last year. It is excellent. I highly recommend it. It's excellent and obviously deeply disturbing because she draws these connections between the Biden family as a whole and the Communist Party in China. And it just solidifies in your mind that the current commander in chief and his family are entirely compromised by China. And it's outrageous and chilling, but it's important to know because it is the reality that we have today. In any, way, in any event, Miranda Devine, she is an expert on the Hunter Biden laptop. And she was on Tucker Carlson sometime in the last week. And she described a letter that she found on the laptop. And she noted on the show that all of Hunter Biden's emails that have to do with sex, drugs, or how to make money, they're all short. They're pretty like, hey, let's meet here and have a drink to discuss. Let's meet there. He's not a he's not a very wordy man in written form. And she said, therefore, it was interesting that this one particular email really popped out. And this email, she she noted, first of all, it's very long, 1800 words. It's bullet points. It's written with real a real sense of a commanding understanding of the topic. And the topic, a lot of it is sort of national security-minded intelligence information. And the background is Hunter Biden at that time was trying to be paid more money for his work with Burisma. He needed he needed money, and he's giving a lot of detail about the geopolitical scene with respect to Burisma. And what Miranda Devine said on Tucker Carlson's show is that email is most likely cut and pasted from a classified document. Everything about it suggests it came from from some kind. Hunter did not write it. Everything about it suggests that someone else who really has command of this subject wrote it up and he cut and pasted it. I'm going to put the link to the email in the show notes and uh, you can read it for yourself and you will see it doesn't sound like drug-addled Hunter Biden. Uh, so th- that obviously is very disturbing. She noted that the first tranche of documents that they found, the um, the intelligence documents, they had to do with the United Kingdom, Ukraine, and I think Iran. And two of those countries are mentioned often in this particular email. So Miranda Devine's suggestion to Tucker Carlson was all they need to do is look at all of these classified documents that they've 
pulled together and try to see if this particular Hunter Biden email matches any of those classified documents. That would be very, very interesting. And a side note, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal a really good point about these documents. When they talk about the documents, they talk about six items, classified items found here or there. And it just sounds like there are a few pieces of paper that have been collected here and there. But as the Wall Street Journal noted, the itemization, there there could be multiple pages, thousands of pages, perhaps boxes. We don't know how many individual sheets of paper of classified documents there are, but it's far more than just six. It could be a, a very, very large number. So just keep that in the back of your mind when these discussions about the classified documents are taking place. Cash Patel then was on Steve Bannon's show earlier this week. I think it was Monday morning. And he was bringing to bear his extensive national security background to this whole story. And he noted to Steve that uh, this kind of investigation, it's not like the National Archives called up and said, we're missing some classified documents. Do you have them? He said it starts when you have a crime you are investigating. And he said on the show, I guarantee you, that the crime that was being investigated that led to them looking for classified documents at the Biden homes uh, stems from the Hunter Biden laptop and stems from his connection with China, Russia, and Ukraine. And he was predicting, ultimately, we're going to find out that these classified documents pertain to those countries. And I just think it's interesting to note that Miranda Devine was telling Tucker Carlson that the United Kingdom and Ukraine were the subjects of of the email that they they have identified on the laptop that she suspects was cut and pasted from one of these classified documents. So I would not blow off the, this uh, classified document scandal as, oh, Biden was being really careless and he just happened to have these documents. If, if it's true what Cash thinks and what Miranda thinks, and these are two very smart people with a lot of deep knowledge and background in both national security and the Hunter um, Hunter Biden and the Biden family and their corruption coming together, putting those two, putting their thoughts together. We have a potentially an explosive story here that there's no doubt the deep state is probably trying to cover up. Like I, I don't think the deep state wants to fully expose the extent of the connection between the Biden family and China, because of course, half of Washington or more is compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. So they probably do not want to start that discussion. But uh, something we're just going to, as I say, continue to keep an eye on this. I think boiling under this is an, an explosive story that we really already know, thanks to books like Miranda Devine's Laptop from Hell. But we're going to have to see to what extent it sort of bubbles up to the national to the national stage. Obviously, we will be following this story for a while on this podcast, as I'm sure more developments come up. But I also want to touch on another topic that's been coming up a lot, and that is the power to declassify. And I touched on this on my Instagram just this week. The president has the authority, the absolute authority to declassify anything. But there's this question of what does the vice president have the power to declassify? And some people say yes, and some people say no. And so it goes back to, you know, an executive order on classification. The president, the vice president, heads of agencies and other people delegated have the power and authority to classify documents. The vice president has the authority to declassify documents 
that he and his office classified. So if he classified it, he can declassify it. The question comes in whether or not he has the authority, if he's in the chain of command, the executive chain of command, such that he oversees in a way that he has that broader authority to declassify other entities' classified documents. So within the security arena, the various agencies, they all sort of have ownership over whatever classified material they themselves classified. And so the question is, does the vice president kind of rise to the level of the president in the executive structure such that he can declassify not just the documents that he himself has classified, but everybody else's? Obviously, the president has that power, does the vice president. And that's where you get the disagreement. And that's not never really been fully tested. But that's why a lot of leftist organizations are saying, oh, he obviously has the power to declassify. And a lot of people on the right are saying he doesn't have the power to declassify. I will also note that whichever way you come down on that issue, some of the classified documents in Biden's possession right now uh, are from his time when he was a U.S. senator. So he would certainly there's no argument that he had uh, the power to classify or declassify as a U.S. senator. Uh, so th- those right there are absolutely, absolutely a crime. And of course, the president, he has the right to take with him copies of his presidential records. So that adds another layer to Trump's justification to have documents in his possession. He has a lifelong security. He held them, as we've discussed, under government protection at Mar-a-Lago, where he had access to a skiff, all of these things that differentiate the situation very starkly from the Biden situation. So is that scandal bruising Washington with the classified document situation and the the deep state and the left attempt to kick Biden off the bust with, without also exposing how deeply compromised Washington is generally to the Chinese Communist Party? We have more more drama and bad choices out of D.C. And this one, of course, has to do with Ukraine. Today, President Biden made the outrageous decision to commit 31 of our Abrams tanks to the Ukrainian uh, war against Russia. Now, for some weeks, there have been there's been a lot of negotiation and dispute in Europe about whether or not Germany should send its Leopard tanks to Ukraine to help them in their in their war. And Germany has been discussing with the United States. There's just lots and lots of discussion. And ultimately, the decision obviously is that both the U.S. and Germany will commit this firepower to Zelensky. And uh, there's no doubt the Abrams tanks, apparently, I'm not an armament expert by any stretch, but the Abrams tanks are very sophisticated, as one would expect from a nation like the United States, far more sophisticated than any Ukrainian tanks. And Ukraine will need training and possibly even support to figure out how to operate our Abrams tanks. And Joe Kent was on Bannon's war room, and he was noting that this is just going to further enrich military contractors, which I take to mean that we will probably have Americans deployed with these troops, and I don't mean necessarily yet American troops, but American military contractors who will go over there and work with the Ukrainians to help them manage these tanks. Clint Ehrlich, who's been excellent on the whole Ukrainian situation on Twitter from the start of this debacle, he also notes that this gets us closer than ever to 
all-out war between the U.S. and Russia. This is a preparation for a massive ground war between Russia and Ukraine. And, and we are supporting it in a massive, massive way. And there's even talk that these tanks will be used by the Ukrainians in an attempt to take back the Crimea. And Vladimir Putin and, and Russia have made clear that they will consider using nuclear weapons to defend Crimea. So once again, every time you think we can't escalate it anymore, this this war escalates even more. And when you have when you have American tanks, top of the line tanks on the ground fighting against Russia, I don't know how much closer we can get to all out war. Except it gets better. Zelensky, the warmonger himself, today, as soon as we announced that we would send these Abrams tanks, he now is demanding <laughs> As outrageous as this is, he's demanding fighter jets as well. So we're just baby-stepping our way into a war that Congress Congress should declare war. If we're, if we're going to go to war, there should be a decision made in Congress, and people should take responsibility for it. And we should have a voice. We, the American people, should have the opportunity to raise our voice and say, we oppose this war. We have absolutely no interest in getting into an escalating potential nuclear conflict with Russia. Yet here we are. So it really is extraordinary to me. The U.S. had been saying, no, it wouldn't send these Abrams tanks. No, it wouldn't send these Abrams tanks. And now bingo, we're sending the Abrams tanks. One does have to wonder if it's a play on the part of Biden to deflect from his current woes here at home. It seems like the war in Ukraine against Russia has had a multitude of reasons. Obviously, I think it's Washington pushing for regime change. I think it's our military, our military complex making a fortune. It's money laundering between Ukrainian elites and U.S. elites, but it's also just a ploy by the Biden regime to put something else in the news, given its own struggles here at home. And that was clear from the start. And we talked about this last week, how the war in Ukraine really bumped COVID off of the front pages. We haven't talked about COVID in months. Suddenly now uh, we're getting more and more headline news about how bad the vaccine is, how bad the reactions are, how the vaccine isn't working. You know, there's there's this explosion of discussion about that. All of that has been suppressed, not affirmatively suppressed, but just our, our minds have been taken up by this conflict between Russia, Ukraine, and of course, in the background, the United States and Europe. So it accomplished it accomplished a number of goals, both pushing COVID off the front page distracting from inflation, making an excuse for the energy crisis, which is really a, a crisis of the climate green energy agenda going off the rails, and they want to patch that over. So, I mean, it's obviously a complicated situation, but we have no strategic interest in Ukraine, and no one seems to be pausing. Not enough people are pausing and, and just making that connection. We do not belong in this fight. There's nothing for us to gain here. And yet we are committing our treasure. And very soon, I'm afraid, we could end up committing our blood to and 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 endangering our homeland. <laughs> nuclear nuclear war would be just un hard to hard to comprehend how awful nuclear war would be. But we are on the brink of these catastrophes for what? So we'll see we'll see where that goes. I'm going to put in the show notes a tweet thread that Clint Ehrlich posted today. As I say, he's it's a little dark, but he's been very, very good throughout all of these many months, 
blowing the whistle, despite how, you know, if, if you, I, I think it's getting better now, but if you kind of raise your voice against the conflict in Ukraine, you're attacked by all sorts of people as being Russia loving and, and all of this crazy stuff, you would have been on the wrong side of World War II. Absolute nonsense. Absolute poppycock. This is a fool's errand. And we're clearly being taken for a ride in every possible in every possible way on on this conflict. And I would also note, we we are depleting our own military supplies by sending these thing these all of these weapons over to Ukraine. I remember it was some some months ago. I was reading a, a number of tweets and reports from special forces talking about how they were being told to turn over various specialized weapons that are not easily replaceable, and those are being shipped off to Ukraine. So it's it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. Let's keep an eye on it and continue to pray for our country and raise our voices. Kevin McCarthy, of course, is the new Speaker of the House. He has supported the war in Ukraine up until now, uh, voting to fund it uh, multiple times. So that's not encouraging. But hopefully we can bring pressure to bear on him to use the majority we have in the House now to somehow start to dial this back, to leverage either the debt ceiling debate or some future piece of legislation to use whatever leverage we can to force the Democrats down a little bit on this whole Ukrainian war parade. Because it's just, there's just no guarantee that it won't end in horrific calamity for our homeland. Finally, I want to talk about a very interesting article that I came across in the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. There was an article titled, Ohio Republicans Stage Their Own House Speaker Drama. I will, again, link this in the show notes. And for those of you who missed it last week, I'm now going to start sending out the show notes in an email. You can sign up for that email. It's a Substack for Bravado. You can find it by going to the Molly McCann memo on Substack and I linked to it there. But if you sign up for that, you will get the show notes every week with a link to the most recent podcast episode. In any event, there was this article in the Wall Street Journal, Ohio Republicans staged their own House Speaker drama. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So apparently Ohio, the Ohio legislature has a significant supermajority of Republicans, and they went to elect their speaker, a man who I suppose was the conservative choice, was Representative Derek Marin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was the nominee for speaker. It was expected that he would easily win the nomination. And at the last minute, about 20 breakaway GOP members banded together with the Democrats and elected a different Republican, not a Democrat, a different Republican to be the speaker. And the Republican's name was Jason Stevens. He's new to the House there in Ohio. And it sounds like he's a moderate Republican. Now, he has denied that he's a moderate Republican, but I would ask you if you can get the entire Democrat bloc to vote for you for speaker over someone else. I'm going to guess that he is more moderate than Representative Derek Marin. I'm not familiar with Ohio with Ohio state politics, uh, but that's just that's just my read. I don't think that's a hard conclusion to come to. In any event, the article went on and it got even more interesting. Apparently, in the coming legislative session in Ohio, 
the House has to put forward or has to pass a joint resolution that will place on the ballot a question for Ohioans to decide. And that question is whether or not they should raise the threshold for amending their state constitution from a simple majority to a 60 percent majority, i.e. they're wondering if they should change the rules so it makes it harder to amend their state constitution. And the Democrats apparently oppose the change because they think it'll make it harder to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution. So the Democrats plan now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and the question has been the question of abortion has been returned to the states is to go after state constitutions and protect the right to abortion individually in each in, in states constitutions. And to do that in Ohio, all they need is a simple majority. If you change the rules and make amending the state constitution uh, demand a 60% majority, it's going to be harder to enshrine abortion in the constitution. So a lot of people are looking at this and saying, hmm, there was this coup comprised of all of the Democrats and 20 presumably moderate Republicans to elect a different and more moderate Speaker of the House in a time when you have this legislative session which has this very important abortion issue. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Ohio House places this question on the ballot for the voters to decide whether or not to make it more difficult to amend the Ohio Constitution. And I'm very concerned that it will not happen because it does seem like the Democrats probably made a deal with these 20 Republicans. And of course, abortion is the key issue for many Democrats now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So keep an eye on that. Again, on this show, more and more, I want to turn our attention from federal issues to state issues. It is through the states and through grassroots action that we are going to save this country if we are going to save this country. And what is happening in your state legislature and in these state constitutions is so critically important to our freedom. As I say, it's not as sexy as Washington and federal national politics, but it's really the nitty gritty of how we self-govern and how we stay free. So I, I just thought this was a very interesting little news story in the Wall Street Journal. I had heard absolutely nothing about it. And I will, as I say, link it in the show notes. The only other thing I thought was very interesting is the Wall Street Journal mentioned that at the last minute, CPAC endorsed this Jason Stevens, the representative who kind of came from behind and took the speaker's gavel. And I, I googled that. I looked on Twitter. I looked everywhere to find more about this last minute endorsement by CPAC, and I couldn't find it, but it's right here in the Wall Street Journal. And that, I think, bears, just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, keep that in the back of your mind. Why would CPAC endorse this coup in Ohio that may or may not be primarily focused on the question of amending the state constitution to enshrine abortion? So food for thought, we will keep an eye on that. All right, let's move very briefly Sticking to the whole states and federalism topic, let's do a very quick legal update. The legal update today is out of Florida, out of, I believe it is, the Middle District of Florida. Let's see if I'm right about that. The Northern District of Florida, Tallahassee Division, Judge Robert L. Hinkle. Uh, Judge Hinkle was ruling on a question about, it was the case is Andrew Warren v. Ron DeSantis. Warren is a progressive state attorney in Florida. It's an elected position, and he signed on to a number of different statements from various organizations, seemingly pledging not to prosecute 
or not to criminalize health care for women, i.e. Um, abortions or people seeking gender affirming medical treatments, that sort of thing. So he's very, very progressive and was really pushing back with his office against the Republican policies in Florida, particularly with respect to some of these extremely volatile issues such as abortion and gender reassignment surgeries. And good for DeSantis, he suspended him. And Warren brought suit, and he just lost in the Northern District in Florida. The judge wrote a 50 or 60-page opinion. It's absolutely nauseating. He basically makes Warren's case for him. He goes through and explains all the reasons why Warren was wronged by this action on the part of the uh, the governor. But ultimately, it's a federal court. Warren sued in federal court, not in state court. And the judge had to conclude that the 11th Amendment, quote, prohibits a federal court from awarding declaratory or injunctive relief of the kind at issue against a state official based only on a violation of state law. So even though he said, oh, he violated the U.S. Constitution, I should rephrase that. Although the judge said that DeSantis had violated the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment and all of these different things because he had this separate basis on which he determined to to suspend Warren, the federal judge cannot provide relief on this purely state issue. So he, uh, the judge made this decision, obviously, very, very bitterly. And all I can say is it's just a moment for us as Americans to rejoice at the forethought and wisdom of our founding fathers in creating this system that um, that has checks and balances and also distributes power between the federal government and the states. And as we've discussed before, our state sovereignty is always being chipped away and abused as the federal government amasses more and more power to itself. And I hope in these insane times, and especially, frankly, with the federal court system so out of control, it becomes clearer, more clear to us how important it is to do everything we can to protect and defend federalism, protect and defend our state sovereignty, and all of the sovereignty that we still possess, because it's in breaking out into the states and leveraging that state power against the federal government that we're going to survive. So I thought this was a huge win for Ron DeSantis. Massive congratulations to him for suspending this guy to begin with and for, you know, defending it in court and winning on this on this issue. It it was a win not just for Ron DeSantis and his administration. It was a win for state sovereignty and for all of us as well. All right, let's jump into our mailbag. Again, I say this every time, but I put the mailbag up on Monday afternoon on my Instagram at mallmccann. It's at mall.mccann on Instagram. And you can submit your questions. You can also send me an email with the subject line mailbag, or you can send me a DM. But if you would try to send it on a Monday, that makes it easier for me to keep track of everything. And it's more likely I will be able to answer your question on the show. Someone asks, are people like Sidney Powell and Mike Lindell still working on election fraud from 2020? Mike Lindell is out there working really, really hard on election integrity from 2020. I mean, he's just poured an enormous amount of money into this uh, investigation. And I frankly think that his work is probably the best of everyone who is currently trying to prove fraud 
in the 2020 election. Sydney has just been overwhelmed by lawsuits. And again, probably the topic for another podcast. I've talked about it before. I need to talk about it again. But Sydney was out there. She was such a hard charger. She was such a leader on this issue. And she's being punished by being crushed by lawfare, crushed by these these lawsuits that are attempting to destroy her not just politically, but personally as well. So she's fighting off lawsuits brought by Dominion, and I think Smartmatic. She's also fighting all of these bar charges and sanctions. So they're trying to take her license. They're trying to sanction her. It's just, it's, it's the political and personal prosecution of conservative leaders who, who really take a stab at the corruption that's at the heart of our government right now. And it's a, it's a real disgrace. So I consider Sydney to still be fighting the election fight in it in that she is she's bearing the cost of speaking up and fighting uh, the 2020 election fraud. I don't think she's actively working on election fraud right now. She's just trying to maintain her license and stave off multiple suits. But that said, that's just Sydney herself personally. Her organization, Defending the Republic, is doing a variety of wonderful things on a rather breathtaking array of subjects. And I encourage you to go to her website and look into all the different things she's doing, not just with respect to corruption in the government, but uh, vaccine mandates and defending our military members in court and a lot of other things. So she's doing excellent work, which is quite impressive given the enormous strain she's under from these this assault of lawfare. Someone says, will the Republicans be able to accomplish anything they have promised without Mitch? I guess by that you mean without the U.S. Senate. Well, anytime you hear someone crowing about the bill that they've just filed and or proposed, that's, in my opinion, kind of just grandstanding. Sometimes it's to get people on the record on an important issue, and there can be some value to that. In, uh, But in general, we're not going to get the supermajority of all of these really conservative bills people are cooking up. We're not going to get those through the Senate, obviously, right now. But as I mentioned last week, what the what the House Republicans can do is focus on those areas where the House has authority to act and it doesn't need the Senate. And that's specifically or particularly in areas like investigations, using the subpoena power to start kicking in the door of these federal agencies and bringing to light the corruption and the the people who have lied and betrayed our country and should be should be exposed and brought to justice they could be doing that and they should be doing that someone else asks who do you think at this point will be the republican pick for president i still think it will be donald trump i his poll numbers are good he is still the leader of the republican party he certainly has flaws but there's nothing to suggest that there's any other candidate who can unseat him and that's been the case that's been the case all along and i don't think i don't think that will change it could change certainly politics has twists and turns and unexpected changes but for the moment he remains he remains the front runner and i think he will be i think he will be the nominee we shall see Someone says, what do you think of Schiff and Swalwell being denied seats on the Intelligence Committee? I mean, it's the least that Kevin McCarthy could do. Adam Schiff is a liar. And as Kevin McCarthy himself pointed out, the Intelligence Committee, they have access to classified information that no one else has. And when Devin Nunez would issue a report in in the midst of all the Russiagate nonsense, Adam Schiff would come out and 
and lie. He would claim that that wasn't true when he knew it was true. So he lied to the American people. He's a disgraceful and shameful man. Eric Swalwell is literally, or was literally, sleeping with a Chinese spy. I mean, this is, it's insane that these people have access to all of this classified information. So kicking them off that committee, it's the least that Kevin McCarthy could do, but I'm I'm not swooning over it. I, I, I just think it was the right it was the right move. It's gotten him lots of brownie points and lots of positive conservative press. So let's see what he does next that shows uh, some muscle on behalf of the American people. Someone asks the FBI guy that's Russia collusion. When will Trump be vindicated? Oh, this is McGonagall, this um, former FBI agent who is in a leadership position who has been indicted uh, with ties to Russia, when will Trump be, be vindicated? Unfortunately, I don't think that this story with McGonagall is any reflection on when we will have progress with Donald Trump. Donald Trump will be vindicated when he returns to office and he breaks the deep state. That's when Donald Trump will be vindicated. He will be vindicated when he disbands the FBI, when he clears out the CIA, when he brings the deep state to its knees and not a minute before. He will be vindicated if he is ultimately the victor. As the saying goes, history will be kind to me because I will write it. I think that was Churchill. Uh, but, you know, the victor writes the story. Trump will be, vic- will be vindicated if he's able to break this chokehold that the corrupt and out-of-control deep state has on, on the American political system and the American people. And that could take a very, very long time. So don't hold your breath, but certainly fight as hard as you can to support Trump in that endeavor. And by the way, that is one of the primary reasons I support Trump so strongly. I think he is the man to break the deep state. He has nothing to lose. He has everything to fight for. His political career is essentially, it's at the end of its, you know, he's, he has four more years or not much of anything else as opposed to a lot of other people who are running, they have lots of opportunities for different things. Donald Trump needs to come back and accomplish that dirty, gritty, difficult task, and and history will remember him well for it. All right, I think that's it. Sign up for the show notes if you want to get all the links to the various tweet threads or articles that I read that contributed to my comments for this show. You can find that at the Molly McCann memo on Substack. There's a link there. And uh, I will be back next week. Again, I am Molly McCann Sanders. and Thank you for listening to Bravado. Bravado.